I paid too much for properties. I grew too fast. I was unstable. I didn't pay attention to the red flags around me. 2008 came around. We hit the worst economic crisis the world's ever seen. I thought I could weather the storm. My properties started bleeding. People moved out. I couldn't weather the storm. 2010, I imploded. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And if you're not yet a member, please go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join and receive the following five benefits. First, the risk reduction checklist to help you reduce your risk. Second, my weekly investment research email to help you increase your return. Third, a 25% discount on all A Starts Academy courses. Fourth, instant access to our Facebook community to get to know the prior guests and fellow listeners. And fifth, my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. So much value I've created for you, my podcast listeners. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Michael, better known as Mike Morawski. Mike, are you ready to rock? I am, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. I, you noticed my radio voice there, huh? Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> and, you know, obviously I'm taking a risk. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Mike is a 30-plus-year real estate investment veteran who has controlled over $285 million in real estate transactions. Mike is an entrepreneur, author, real estate trainer, public speaker, and personal coach with a strong personal resilience and deep desire to help others live an extraordinary life. He's coached hundreds of real estate investors to fulfill their dreams. Mike, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, sure, Andrew. You want me to uh, start from the beginning? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the audience would love to get to know you. Okay. So I've been in real estate for 30 years, like you said. I had a general contracting business prior to that and you know, had built a very successful contracting business doing mostly residential, so I did kitchen and bath and room additions. And I woke up one morning and I was just burnt out. I was still swinging a hammer and I couldn't do it anymore. Looked at my wife at the time and said, I don't know what to do. I'm done. So I sold the business, took a year off. And during that year, my wife and I did a couple of fix and flips. We actually house hacked. And mm. that was long before house hacking was sexy or the fun thing to do. And we met a real estate agent along the way. And, you know, I really liked this guy's perspective on real estate and how he handled himself. And I thought, well, this might be a good business for me to go into. So I called him up and I asked him and he goes, man, I think you'd be great at it. I said, great. So can I shadow you and come and learn from you? And he said, no, he goes better than that. I'm going to make you a cassette tape. Now I'm dating myself, right? <laughs> huh. Because I don't think you could find it. wasn't any... an eight track though. No, it wasn't. <laughs> never record on those eight nah, exactly exactly that but was a made, test yeah right i am that old yes so he made me a cassette tape and i listened to that tape over and over and over again and my whole goal was to 
absorb what he was teaching. Mm. And what's interesting is, is I look at that cassette tape today, like, like podcasts of today, we can go back, we can listen to this material. We can listen to that information. So I went in the real estate business. My first nine months in the business, I sold 78 houses. I went on to build a team selling 100, 125 homes a year, did that consecutively for the next eight or nine years. And in 2005, I saw the market starting to shift. And I knew that I was going to have to do something different if I wanted to keep the production up. So at that time, I decided to go in the apartment business. Now, what I'll say is I didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to go in the apartment business. And it's been something I thought about for years because I understood the private equity model. And I understood that you could raise private equity, marry it with a good real estate deal. And as long as everything went well, you stayed in the middle, everybody made money and everybody was a winner. So I went, started raising money and buying apartment deals. Well, over the next 30 months, I raised $18 million. I bought $60 million worth of real estate, was 4,000 apartments in five different states. And I went on to build a property management company managing about 7,500 units. And today- That's a me- meteor, what is it called? A meteoric rise. Yeah. We grew really fast, very unstable, had a lot of issues that happened along the way. I was over leveraged, paid too much for properties, didn't Mm. pay attention to a lot of the red flags. And all of a sudden, 2008 came around. So today, as a result of all that, I'm in the coaching and training business. Got it. Got it. Okay. And uh, I'd say a coach that really has been through it. So, you know, one of the things I always say about this podcast is that for people who are coaches, advisors, working with other people, is that when you meet someone who's willing to dig into their worst investment ever and go through what they learned from it, you know, you really are a valuable person that I think can add a lot of value to the relationships in business that you do. It's surprising the number of people I invite on the show that say either I've never made a mistake <laughs> or, or say my favorite one was cool show, not my style. Wow. And, you know, there's a lot of people that just simply do not want to reveal themselves, you know, in the mistakes that they make, which, you know, I understand. And there's been times in my life where I've been in that situation, but the point of this podcast is that this is where we do discuss it in a real way. And we discuss, you know, we messed up and how can other people learn from that? And that's, that's really what it's all about. So to move into that part, I'd like to ask you, it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to, and then tell us your story. So, I think the worst investment I ever did was the first apartment deal I did. But beyond that, you know, you, you brought up a couple of interesting points here. You said, you know, nobody makes mis- you know, people don't want to admit their mistakes. Well, I've made some mistakes. You know, I named a few, right? I was over leveraged. I paid too much for properties. I grew too fast. I was unstable. I didn't pay attention to the red flags around me. 2008 came around. We hit the worst economic crisis the world's ever seen. I thought I could weather the storm. My properties started bleeding. People moved out. I couldn't weather the storm. 2010, I imploded. 
So what I tried to do along the way was I tried to protect my investors. And by doing that, I thought, well, if I take money from good profitable companies that are operating well, I can move that money into non-profitable companies and hopefully keep the whole ship afloat. Hey, Andrew, listen, we, you and I have both seen our share of recessions over the years. Yep. And my experience has always been that there's a 10% correction in the market and that recession will last 17 or 18 months. Well, this thing, there was a 40% correction and it lasted seven or eight years. And there's mm. people still recovering from it. Yep, yep. So as a result of that, you know, so I get to a point where it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to protect my investors. I should have let a few deals go to foreclosure. I should have let a handful of investors get affected by that and get hurt. But I didn't want anybody to get hurt. And I mm. thought I could be the hero and weather the storm. So I started moving money back and forth. And, you know, my attorney, my accountant, they both said, it's fine to do that. Let just leave notes so that it's traceable. Well, that was fine. But the problem was I didn't tell my investors. And for not telling my investors, I was charged with wire fraud and mail fraud charges, ultimately sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. So I lost, you know, everything, lost the company. And, and you know, Andrew, it's, it's interesting because I, I had a pretty decent amount of success. I wasn't, I wasn't super rich by any means, but we lived a really decent lifestyle. My lifestyle never changed. I didn't buy big boats. I didn't buy fancy cars. I didn't fly private, didn't take exotic vacations. And, you know, I tried to save the business. I poured all this money back in the business, moved money around, and everything imploded. So it all backfired. As a result, I found myself walking into federal prison. I had a 10-year 10 10 prison sentence. And, you know, Andrew, at that point, I thought, this is as bad as it can get. It can't get any worse. And how old were you at that time, just to put it in reference? Yeah, I was 55. Got it. And... Actually, I was 54 mm. and I, um, I thought, God, it can't get any worse, right? This is the bottom. Well, about 17 days after being in prison, my wife decided to leave me and then it got the worst it could possibly have gotten. I was devastated, didn't know how I was going to mitigate each day that went by. You know, you went from living a upper middle class lifestyle, being at kids' events, traveling to now I live in a room with four men that I don't know, 12 by 12 room on a bunk bed, living out of a, a two by five locker. I've got three green uniforms and five pairs of underpants. And you wonder what happened in my life? How did I get here? So I was having a pretty rough time and I walked into the gym. I was probably in prison for about six weeks and I walked into the gym and this guy came up to me and he said, hey, don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take everything from you you ever had. They can take your apartments. They can take your cars. They can take your houses. They can ru ruin your family, but they can't take what you're made of. They can't take your brains. They can't take your desire. They can't take your energy. And he was right. Probably the best advice I'd ever gotten. As a result of that, you know, there's a, there's a saying in prison that says you can either do the time or let the time do you. 
and I chose to do the time. So I, I went to college, and which is a whole story in itself how this happened. But I went to college. I got a four-year degree in theology. So I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I went on and I wrote two books. I wrote a book called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and, and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. Love to give a copy away to your listeners. Mm, we'll put there. that in the show notes. Yeah. I wrote a book on property management. I taught real estate investing. I taught property management for five years. I wrote an, an ethics course. I taught ethics for five years. How ironic, right? <laughs> I taught Bible studies. I was on an outreach program because I was a you know model prisoner. I went into the community about 40 times, told my story to small business owners, local area businesses, and the colleges in the area. As a result of that, I met a professor from the University of Minnesota that we co-authored a paper together. It was an ethics case study. And that, that case study just got published in the Business Journal of Ethics in January this year and gets taught at the collegiate level where forensic accounting classes, sales and marketing classes. So I came home from prison as a result of that conversation with that young man. I came home from prison in better shape physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually than I'd ever been in my life. Today, I've taken all that wisdom and all that knowledge from years of coaching and training, and I put it on a platform. And, and my goal is to give back, to give a message of hope and inspiration that, you know, no matter how bad it gets, you can get through it. And there's life on the other side. Mm. So. So how would you summarize the key lessons that you learned from this experience? So, you know, I have to go back to how I bought property, how I did the investments. Mm. Key lessons really are, first of all, I grew way too fast. 2007, I closed 17 transactions. It was 2,700 units and we weren't stabilizing property along the way. So things were very unstable. As a result of that, it, and, and if you can picture this, right, it's like balancing on a, two legs of a chair, lifting your feet off the ground, trying to eat your breakfast. <laughs> so it's very unstable. Got it. And, too fast growth. Yep. You know, I grew a company, hired people because I thought it was a, that, you know, we would grow into needing them and that mm. we, they were talent and I didn't want to lose the talent. And so we grew too fast. I hired too many people. I had too big of a payroll. Over leveraged, I put down 15%. I had $60 million worth of real estate. We were 85% loan to value. Not a smart thing to do. You should be 25, 30% equity, you know, 65 to 70% loan to value. Mm. I paid too much for properties. You know, the market's going up. And as it's going up, I'm buying properties on the way up, thinking that it was going to keep going up. And I, I should have been negotiating better, and I didn't. I didn't pay attention to the red flags around me, Andrew. You know, I'll be real honest, and don't get me wrong. I, I broke the law. I made some choices. I made some bad business decisions that I shouldn't have done. But people around me told me that they didn't trust people that I was in that were in my life. I should have listened. Mm. You know, coming home from dinner one night, my my wife told me that she didn't, you know, trust my business partner. And, and I said, well, I have this under control and I didn't have anything under control. Yep. 
So, you know, I should have said, tell me more. What, what don't you trust? What don't you understand? Mm, you know, yes. she's got things going on that I didn't see. Right. Yep. Isn't it always the case in our life, right? Is we get, we put these blinders on and we all of a sudden are like, you know, everything's fine. And my conversation with him, with him would be, how is everything going? Everything just fine. Got it under yep. control. Great. I get on an airplane and leave town for a few days, you know? Mm. Yep. You know, you don't pay attention to the red flags. I had my my head buried in the sand. I didn't look at the KPIs deep enough, you know, and then all of a sudden got Boom. hit. Yep. So. Wow. Okay. So maybe I'll share some of the, I mean, I've been sitting here taking notes as you've been talking. I mean, let's just review for a moment for the listeners. You know, he grew too fast. He was over leveraged. He overpaid for properties and he ignored the red flags. I mean, and that is golden help and advice for all of us mm. to beware of. And um, I want to talk about a few things I've written down. You know, one thing is about in the world of finance, in the world of CFA, where I teach ethics, we have something called, you know, follow the mandate. Mm. And it's, it's a really important thing between an investor and an advisor. An investor and advisor come upon an agreement. Here's what we agree that I'm going to do with your money. It doesn't mean that an investor, an advisor is going to, you know, make tons of money. They may lose money. They may make some mistakes in their investment. But as long as they follow the mandate, they're going to be okay. And so I think one of the lessons that I take away from it is just make sure when you've done your, your deals with your investors that you understand your mandate very clearly and then follow that. And you will be tempted, which brings me to the next point, which is so hard. When you get into a crisis, parts of your life and parts of your business and parts of your friends are falling apart and you want to help. But if helping one violates the mandate of another, then now, now you're getting yourself in trouble and you can't help someone when you're in trouble. And so it's one of the hardest things. And I, you know, you mentioned it when you were talking, like I should have just let some of those, you know, companies die and let the investors lose, you know, and that brings me to the next point, which is, you know, I tell a story about my coffee business. When we started the coffee factory here in Thailand, my best friend, Dale, it, it wasn't easy. We went into the 1997 crisis, you know, we were almost wiped out. It was awful. And he was depressed and it was just very, very tough. And, you know, I always said to him, particularly at that time, in his darkest hour, you can quit. You know, I'm sorry, but all the people that invested in you knew it's a high risk investment. They knew the risks they're taking and it's business. As long as you haven't defrauded or done anything wrong, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm out. I did my best and I lost money, yeah. losing money is not a crime in most countries. Some countries, Italy as an example, can be much tougher on bankruptcy and stuff, which is what I've learned from my interviews. Is it, but if you're in America, you know, it's okay to fail and stop the bleeding. The next thing that I wrote down was the idea of communication. And the time for communication that's the hardest is when it is the toughest. And I think that communicating with your investors is so critical. 
And the fact is, is that, you know, you could even get an agreement from your shareholders. I want to do this with this portion of money. And if you got shareholder approval to allocate X percent to that, and you said, this is a troubled thing, but I think that this will help it, you know, whatever, leave it to them. And if they say, yep, we approve and we, you know, authorize you to do that, then that can change your mandate a little bit. Nothing wrong with that. And then if they say no, then you can go back to the other company that's struggling and say, look, there's nothing I can do. And the other thing I, I just want to talk about finally about the ethics, I would say in some ways I would call it the randomness of ethics. And that is, first of all, when it rains, it pours, <laughs> right? We say in, in English, when it rains, it pours, meaning when things get bad, they get real bad. So ladies and gentlemen who are listening, get ready because your worst moments could be much worse than you expected. And that's when you really need to dig down inside. And that's where I want to end my part of this by saying that a while ago, I was asked to give a speech at a conference here in Thailand to financial professionals. And it was sponsored by the SEC, the regulator in Thailand. And so there was a lot of regulators in the room and there was a lot of professional investors in the room. And I just asked everybody to, you know, Think for a moment, and I'm going to ask the same thing right now of people listening. Think for a moment, what was the worst thing you have ever done? Think about that worst thing you've ever done. I can tell you there's many people whose worst things that they've done are illegal things. And now imagine there's another person who did that exact same thing, but they got caught and they went to jail. So which person is more ethical? You who did the same thing, but didn't get caught or them who did the same thing, but got caught and went to jail. And I use this as a way of reminding ourselves to have some compassion for the people who do get caught and the people who are in trouble. And also to remember that it could happen to us. And, you know, obviously, Nobody, everybody's going to give the advice, don't do anything wrong. Yeah, obviously, we want to not do anything wrong. But I, I think, you know, I remember a guy that got, basically got in trouble in relation to CFA and the financial community in Thailand. And boy, it was a pile on, and he was definitely in trouble. And I was the president of CFA Society Thailand at the time. And, you know, I didn't tell anybody about it, but I called him. And I said, I'm not calling you to blame you or anything. I'm just calling you to say that you can make it through this. And I think that, you know, having compassion for people who make mistakes and pay the price for those mistakes is an important element. So those are some of the things I took away. Is there anything you would add to that? You know, there's two things that I'd like to add. And one is you were talking about ethics and a comment that I, I like to make, and, and I taught this when I taught ethics, is just because you act unethically doesn't mean you break the law. But enough unethical actions ultimately will cause you to break the law. Mm -hmm. It's a cause and effect. And, and I think it happens. The other thing is that when you were talking about communication and letting your investors know and letting people know, 
you know, I had a situation and actually, if you went to, to pull my ethics paper off my website, you'd read this story, but I'm walking into a board meeting in 2010. And now I had a board of advisors, 12 men and women, much smarter than me, nine of them from other disciplines, weren't even in real estate. So these were people that I trusted that I could go to on a, on a quarterly basis and say, hey, this is where we're at. This is what's going on. What do you think? I'm walking into a board meeting in the spring of 2010, and I met in the parking lot by my in-house legal counsel, somebody I pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to thinking they've got my back and that how could he be wrong, right? So I, he says, wait, I don't want you to talk about what's going on right now. Mm. You don't have enough information. I said, wait, I said, we have plenty of information. We've lost occupancy. Our cash flow stopped. We can't finish the repairs. We're unstable. We can't pay bills and we can't pay investor returns. I need help. We don't have enough information, he said. So we have this little debate and I go against my better judgment. And I say, okay, you're right. We'll wait two weeks. We'll have a conference call in two weeks. And I walk into this meeting with a totally different agenda. Wrong. I should have went with my gut. I should have went doing what I was originally going to do because that meeting could have helped change my destiny. That meeting might have helped get some things straightened out or done some things differently that might have caused, you know, but I took somebody else's opinion that I thought, you know, hey, I pay this guy a lot of money. He's got to know more than me, right? So Mm. you're right. Communication is very important. And I think that we need to be very transparent and vulnerable and allow people to know, you know, hey, this is a mistake. Yep, yep. So I'm going to wrap up what, what I've got to say about this by talking about what I teach in my ethics class, which is 10 ways ethics adds value to you. And the point that I think, you made is the idea of trying to live by ethical principles. And if you do, you know, it's not going to be in a situation where you build up unethical actions that lead to getting in trouble. So I like to teach ethics from a positive light by telling, I mean, there's enough stories out there, yours as an example, that tells us don't make these mistakes, but let's think about ethics in a positive light for a moment. I like to think about ethics in two ways, your interactions with others, and the way that you work. So let's look at your interactions with others. If you're loyal, trustworthy, fair, and confidential. And finally, number five, you reveal conflicts of interest. Loyal, trustworthy, fair, confidential, and you reveal conflicts of interest. You have built into your character ethical principles that are very rare. But to make it even more rare, let's look at the way you work. If you're diligent, independent, objective, thorough, and continually improve, you have built ethics into the way that you work. So number six is diligent. Number seven is independent. Number eight is objective. Number 10 is thorough. And number, sorry, number nine is thorough. Number 10 is continually improve. If you combine the way you interact with others and the way that you work and you use and apply these 10 concepts, you're going to have built an ethical character that's going to protect you in the future. And it's going to make you very, very rare. And in the world of finance, rare is valuable. 
So let me ask you, I want to ask you this question based upon, you know, imagine there's a lot of people right now struggling with their businesses. They're struggling with cash flow pressures and family members are asking for money. Businesses are asking for money. They're different businesses in different places. All of what went on in your situation, going on in other people's lives right now, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Don't do it yourself. When you're under that kind of pressure, you're pulled in a bunch of different directions. You, you ultimately do not know what the right choice is to make by yourself. You have to go to someone else with a clear head. Don't go to your business partner. Don't go internally. Go outside and go to somebody else with a clear head and listen to the people around you. Great advice. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months is to continue to push my message out to people. I really believe, Andrew, that there are men and women, CEOs, C-suite people, middle management, women running teams, building businesses, men running teams, building businesses that are under this pressure that you've talked about. And you know what? Not everybody is, but some people are at different times in their life right? There were plenty of times that things went really great, really smooth for me, but you know, then there weren't those times. So there are the times, and I almost believe that it's not if those times happen, it's when those times happen yep. because they're going to happen. And so I want to continue to push my message out there because I want people to know that there's hope. I want to be an inspiration. You know, if you do fall, if you do stub your toe, get back up. You can get back up. You can get back in the game, right? It yep. doesn't matter how many times you fail. It matters what you do after you fail. So resilience is really important for people mm -hmm. and just walking through it. So I want yep. people to know, you know, others have been through it. Yep. So I'll have all the information in the show notes so that you can get in touch with Mike and also learn more about his story, but also take inspiration from it to keep yourself doing well. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listeners, increase return and reduce risk in your life. To achieve this goal, I've created the free membership group with five free benefits I've mentioned above. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join. As we conclude, Mike, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Uh, Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just, you know, like we had kind of just said a minute ago, don't go it alone reach out, talk to somebody, call me, call you, you know, get outside of your, your space and do something different. Don't do it alone, ladies and gentlemen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.